One of the things you notice when you go to northeast Thailand, where Lumpur Cha lived, is that although the majority, large numbers of people are quite poor, uh, even by the standards of the rest of Thailand, and certainly by the standards of the West, they're rich in faith, satha, and you really see the value of having faith in Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, <coughs> strong faith, because it clearly helps them through many of the difficulties that they encounter. And looking at the number of enlightened meditation masters who were born and raised in Northeast Thailand, it would seem to be a fer fertile place for the practice of the Dhamma, even though conditions could be quite harsh. <coughs> You see why Satha is um, one of the five Indriyas or the five powers. Because it really is an essential quality that uh, supports and nourishes the arising of many of the other qualities that we develop as we develop Marga, the path that leads to the end of suffering. You notice one of the results of faith arising in, in our hearts, in our minds. Faith in the Buddha's enlightenment, faith in the teachings and the path of practice. Some, it'll give rise to a sense that uh, this is something that human beings can do. We all have the potential to practice this and realize uh, the Dhamma in the same way as the Buddha and all the other enlightened masters since, since the time of the Buddha. <coughs> it also tends to counter our background in a more kind of materialistic culture, consumer culture, where Often our thinking and time and activities are caught up with more mundane seeking of um, material happiness, studying, trying to find a job, doing a job, earning money, and spending the money on different things, which tends to feed a lot of craving and desire essential desire, we're always seeking more, get more, and always equating our happiness with what we can get, experiences we can have, things we can buy, and so on. The materialistic culture that we live in these days has 
if we're honest, a lot of our mental activity and physical activity is associated with that. When faith arises, it tends to nourish much more subtle and vital spiritual qualities. So often people find when they have faith arising in the Buddha's teachings through listening to Dhamma, reading books, learning to meditate and so on, one of the first qualities that arises is gratitude. A sense of this is something very valuable that we've discovered, something that can really change us for the better, help us. And this is a very important point because if you have a history of following craving, which we all do, particularly sensual craving, it brings the mind back to a place of more balance where we are appreciating the things that we do have and the things that are available to us that are not just um, the objects of our craving. So like as faith arises, we might appreciate our good fortune that we've been born as a human and have more or less good health, have a chance to listen to Dhamma, have a chance to practice Dhamma in this day and age, in this world as it is. This is our good fortune. <coughs> Coming into contact with teachers and fellow practitioners is our good fortune, and so on. As faith arises, it opens the mind to appreciate more what we do have, the good things, uh, say, uh, the people who have helped us from our parents, teachers, people we've met through our life and our fortunate circumstances. We start to appreciate that more. And straight away this is something that counters craving, which is obviously a deep-rooted um, quality and, and habit of our mind. So that's why when you have faith you generally feel good, feel better. You feel reassured, relieved. Um, and it can be a great source of, of wholesome energy, um, say even if you're living in a poor rural area, say like northeast Thailand, if you have faith, then it literally just keeps you going, even though times are tough. And anyone who's engaged in developing the Buddhist path is going to see the value of this more and more over time. Maintaining faith, uh, nourishing it as a quality in itself is going to be value for, value, invaluable for your practice. Obviously the Buddha talked about our progress in the path. Sometimes he would talk about it in terms of the spiritual faculties, the indriya. So it's not faith alone, but wiriya, persistent effort, sati, mindfulness, samadhi, the stillness of mind, 
and then panya, insight, wisdom. <clears throat> so all these factors work together and um, the teachings we hear and then the effort we make in our practice, we're bringing up a number of different qualities which support each other. This is where often the um, lay teachers or secular teachers of say mindfulness practice in different ways, <coughs> more as a therapeutic technique, relaxation technique. When they teach often it's a very limited um, presentation of the role of mindfulness because they're just emphasizing this one quality which is obviously at the heart of our practice and very important. But we also have to understand that the practice relies on several different qualities. And we, that's why we call it Marga, the Eightfold Noble Path. This is a whole range of things we train in. Or we talk about Dhamma Vinaya. We train in the Vinaya, train in the Dhamma. It's an all-round, very complete training. And the result is that brings the mind, opens the mind up, or awakens the mind to see the Dhamma. And as we know, the Buddha said, one who sees the Dhamma, sees the Buddha. One who sees the Buddha, sees the Dhamma. And seeing the Dhamma really means the Lokutara Dhamma, having that insight that frees the mind from its normal mode of thinking, craving and attaching to the world, takes the mind beyond the world, the Lokutara Dhamma. Because the insight we gain from the practice, it brings the mind, as it were, outside or away from its normal habits of attaching to the world and it brings it something very peaceful a peaceful lasting kind of happiness that doesn't just disappear and totally different from worldly happiness sensual happiness which is as we're aware constantly arising and ceasing other than reading and uh, different forms of media, obviously encountering teachers who can help explain the Dhamma and be a good example is also a great good fortune, which is another important condition for bringing up faith. So we're all very fortunate that we've entered into the tradition, the Sangha of Lumpur Cha, who must be one of the most well-known uh, meditation teachers uh, in the Buddhist world today, and particularly the Theravada Buddhist world. One of the <clears throat> things people, one of the reasons people remember Lumpur Cha so much is that had this amazing ability to give very succinct, brief teachings often, but very much to the point, 
getting people in a particular situation or context to see the Dhamma, to see their suffering, see its cause, and see the way to let go of it. See, to develop insight, often by just a very brief simile or description or just pointing out something. He's so well known for this. And you know, being able to talk about profound Dhamma in a way that most of us can understand, at least on one level, quite easily. The one that always stuck in my mind was he, said, he used to talk about how we don't accept in our hearts, we don't really accept aging, sickness and death. You know, we're born into the world. All we want is just to stay alive, hang around, have our happiness indefinitely really. And we don't want aging, sickness and death and he said, but you know, if you don't accept aging, then it means you can't eat a mango. Why is that? Well, mangoes are the, the product of aging, aren't they? Mangoes start as little flowers on the stem, the end of the twigs of a mango tree. And the little flowers grow into little buds, fruits, and those fruits gradually grow and they start off as hard green fruits and gradually mature and then become sweet mangoes, which most people like to eat. And that's the same thing, birth, old age, sickness and death. And if you want to eat a nice mango, you have to accept it's the product of birth, old age, sickness and death. And that's the nature of this world. And we're born about with birth, up comes old age, sickness and death. There's no way out of that. No way to escape that. <clears throat> another one I remember, another one of those stories from Lumpur Mahamon, how in the early days, as is common in groups of monks sitting around chatting, having a cup of tea or just doing some work. It's always the discussion about who's attained in practice, who's not, who's got samadhi, who's enlightened and so on. Very common. There were one time sitting around chatting about Lumpur Cha. Obviously he wasn't there. Trying to work out what level of enlightenment, attainment he'd achieved. And the monks were egging each other on, saying, well, someone should ask him whether he's an arahant or not. And uh, someone asked Venerable Mahamon, who was a junior monk in those days, he said, he said, oh, I wouldn't dare to. I'm too shy, too scared. I've only been at Wat Bapong a few years, and I couldn't ask such a question. They were looking around for a volunteer, nobody really wanted to do that job, take up the task of asking Ajahn Chah whether he was enlightened or not. So they kind of left it. And later on they went to his kuti, as was common in the evening, and uh, were just sitting there listening to Lumpur Chah talk. And 
as you may know, there's a lot of forest chickens at Wat Wapong. Ajahn Chah often used to feed them, even talk to them sometimes. And a few chickens came up to the kuti, so he just started talking about how or extolling the virtues of the forest chicken and how forest monks should be like the forest chicken and how you know, the forest chickens are very careful because there's danger in the forest. There's predators. The conditions are not the same as in the village. So the forest chicken is always a bit leaner than the, the village chicken, the domestic chicken. It's careful in the way it forages for food. If it's eating or found some food, but then there's danger nearby, it's willing to drop the food to get away. Because they're leaner and more agile, they can fly quicker and further than the house chickens, which often are pretty hopeless, can't escape danger very well. The forest chickens can fly up to a branch when there's a, a snake or a dog around. And they're very energetic, they go around looking for their food. They're very regular, you say, they always, you say they always get up, whatever the weather is. You hear the chickens, the cockerel crows and the chickens cluck first thing in the morning, like clockwork. You don't need an alarm clock, you can just listen to the chickens. They're so regular in their behavior. And they're very careful and very self-sufficient. You know, they don't need people to look after them. That's not the way forest chickens are, they're independent. They don't seek anything in return for what they're doing. And unlike the village chickens, which tend to always be hanging around the owner and wanting more food and making a fuss looking for more food. Then at night, the forest chickens always fly up to a very high branch to escape danger. <coughs> and they don't sleep together. <coughs> he said they tended to find their spot on a branch or on different branches. They didn't socialize at night, making a big noise and attracting predators. They'd be quietly in their spot on a branch but separated through the trees. So of course he was bringing this up to talk about monks, how forest monks can be like chickens. <coughs> to emulate or uh, practice in the same way as a forest chicken. should be you know, regular in their practice, get up early, whatever the weather, whatever the conditions, be regular, be continuous in their practice, be frugal, know the right amount, be lean, you know, to get, not, get, not eat till they get overweight. They should be able to be alert all the time to dangers. The chicken is, has to be the forest chicken has to be alert to snakes and dogs 
<coughs> the monk has to be alert to the kilesas, heedful of greed, anger, delusion, because these are what overwhelm the mind, take away our happiness, and so on. So describing the monk, monk's life as, as, as similar to a forest chicken. But at the end of this little talk and discussion he had, uh, sort of just turned to the monks, the group who'd been talking about the question of whether Ajahn Chah is enlightened or not, what, what level of enlightenment he had. And he, he was just continued on talking, how, he's saying how monks should really not spend a lot of time looking at other people's rice pack, you might say their pack lunch or their, their packet of rice, as it's traditional for the farmers when they go out to work in the fields. Each farmer has a, a little package, maybe a wrapped in a banana leaf, some rice, some chili, maybe a fish or some vegetables if they're lucky. Everyone has their little packet of rice for their lunch when they go out into the field. And he was just saying, oh, we monks, we have to learn just to focus on our own packet of rice and make sure we have enough and you know, find enough rice and food so that we can support ourselves. If we spend all our time looking at other people's packets of rice, <clears throat> we'll forget our own, which all the monks knew what he was driving at, meaning if you're always thinking about other people and what they've attained and what they've got and how successful they are in the practice, then you're laying the conditions for your own disappointments or heedlessness and forgetting your own practice. We shouldn't always be looking at others. <clears throat> so they all went back after that and they actually breathed a sigh of relief because they, they realized Ajahn Chah seemed to know what they're thinking. And it was lucky no one had brought up the question about what level of attainment Ajahn Chah had. That would have fallen into the trap of looking at other people's packets of rice and forgetting your own. So Lumpur Chao was always, it will always be remembered for these uh, amazing, these simple but profound teachings that he would bring up in different situations. He also used to praise monks, say monks in the time of the Buddha, bring them up for praise and to discuss their way of practice or sometimes living monks, and one he often mentioned as a, a good example for the Sangha is the, the monk we know as Jauku No and Dhammawitiko Bhikkhu, who uh, died in the 60s, but one of his, the names people refer to him as, as the Arahant from the city, because he lived in what tapes are in, in the center of Bangkok, which is a very big Dhammayuk Monastery and very busy and right in the city and yet he was considered to have reached enlightenment, Arahant. And Lumpur Chah would bring him up and praise and, and tell the monks to think about how, how he practiced because they're 
were some brief biographies written about his life and practice. It's not so well known for his Dhamma, Dhamma talks, but his way of practice was discussed. <clears throat> and uh, perhaps Lumbhaja had an eye to the future. Obviously the life of the forest monk has been, lifestyle of the forest monk has been changing over the past century as the forests of the world disappear or at least are much more controlled and there's much more urbanization around Thailand and anywhere else in the world is the same. So the life of just wandering in the forest, living uh, in seclusion, simplicity, although the, the, the heart of the practice hasn't changed, but just the external conditions have changed. And so he would praise Jao Kun Noor as somebody who lived right in the city, he lived in his kuti, <clears throat> but very disciplined, focused on his practice, very determined to practice, having given up um, his job in the palace and he had a comfortable, successful lay life. Out of faith, he really, once he ordained, he really put his heart into the practice and was known for doing many hours of sitting and walking meditation. And he would walk meditation late at night because in the daytime the monastery was busy people coming and going. So he's known for coming out at 11 or 12 o'clock at night to do his walking meditation when no one is around. He's also known, Lumpur would always say, he never missed one meeting of the Sangha. Very humble, he always um, turned up for the morning chanting, evening chanting, or any other Sangha meeting or duty. And he was a very polite, humble monk in any kind of public situation. He always was very humble, deferential to other monks, respectful to other monks. And then in his kuti, he's very well known for having his bed was a coffin. So every night he would get into a coffin to sleep and he'd wake up in a coffin, <clears throat> clearly with his mind focused on the impermanence of life, Moranano Sati. And he also had a skeleton hanging up in his room. And he used to call the skeleton Kun Ying, which is like, I mean, it's like lady, it's a very polite term or even title for a lady. So it's like a polite way of saying, you know, maybe you could say jokingly, my wife, my girlfriend, they say, that's Kuning, and he said she's the best uh, partner I've ever had. She never argues, she never asks for anything. <laughs> she just hangs there teaching me, teaching me impermanence. So every, day, every night he would lie in his coffin going to bed looking at a skeleton, and it was a skeleton of a female human being just to really focus on the impermanence of this body, impermanence of others' bodies, you know, the nature of, really get to see the nature of this world to the point where the mind has no more doubt, no more delusion about it. 
Nalumbo Chan used to really praise Yamkunor and say, if you're really determined to practice, you know, there's no, nothing that can stop you in the conditions around you, whether it's busy or quiet, very built up urban situation or the forest, where there's a lot of uh, requisites or very few requisites and so on. Uh, it's the, more the determination to practice, to really train the mind, is the important quality that you need to, to rely on. Because that's what you know, practicing with heedfulness involves. It's constantly turning our mind to the Dhamma, constantly reflecting on our sila, our Vinaya training, because it's only for our benefit to bring up mindfulness of body and speech, learning to do the right thing, learning to uh, restrain the more extreme um, kilesas from coming out in our speech and our actions <clears throat> so that we have a foundation to turn our attention inwards, to really focus mindfulness on this body feelings, the mind and the objects of the mind, to see them as they are, not as a self, things that belong to me, that I identify with, but just to see them as they are, see the body as, as a body, the body in the body, or the body is just a body, just form made up of elements which are without an owner, impermanent, unsatisfactory and without an owner. To see feeling in the same way, to see, see, see feeling as a conditioned thing without an owner. These are experiences that arise from their causes and conditions and they pass away. And when they pass away there's no one there, there's nothing that you can say is a self. Pleasant feelings stimulate attraction, unpleasant feelings stimulate aversion. Neutral feelings tend to stimulate dullness. So that's why we have a lot of sleepiness when we meditate. We, you know, yeah. If there's nothing bothering us too much, not too much noise, the air temperature is not too extreme, we don't have too much happening, then we tend to fall asleep, don't we? So even neutral feeling can stimulate dullness, sleepiness. But within all of this, pleasure, pain, neither pleasure nor pain, these are feelings, they're without self, they're without, they're not without an owner. And we need to bring mindfulness to see that, to see body is just form. Feelings are just feelings. The mind, that which knows, it's again, it's a conditioned thing. When there's wholesome mind states, you bring with them one set of feelings and condition one set of thought patterns and habits. When there's unwholesome thoughts, intentions, they bring with them another set of mental states, different feelings and perceptions. But in the end, these are just what they are. It's just the mind and then there's thoughts but there's no person in those things. Wholesome thoughts are just wholesome thoughts. 
unwholesome thoughts are just unwholesome thoughts. If we can have enough mindfulness and we can see these things as they are, then the mind drops, drops its identification, drops its attachment. So this is our practice over and over again. Standing, sitting, walking, lying down. When we're with others, when we're on our own, we're learning to practice all the time as best we can. Bring our mindfulness back to the present moment and keep investigating that habit of of identifying with the body, the feelings, the thoughts. Whenever we lose our mindfulness and craving takes over, conditions attachment, conditions more suffering. When mindfulness comes up, craving is craving subsides, clinging is not being conditioned, so suffering starts to subside from the mind. We can pr- practice or prove that any time, just by turning back to the breath when you've had a bit of mental agitation or suffering and you just have enough clarity to turn your mindfulness to the breath and breathe mindfully a few moments that mental agitation or suffering will start to cease or completely disappear very quickly but it's the power of habit that stops us in doing this successfully we keep going back to our habit of seeking distraction the next thing to do, the next object to delight in, indulge in, or the frustration of not getting what we want, going to aversion, negativity. It's the power of that habit, that conditioning process takes us away from our mindfulness back towards suffering. So we really have to keep (coughs) working with the situation we have like the forest chickens, just keep going, keep going every day in a regular manner, careful, guarded, not giving in to our craving because that can lead to disaster. And being willing to let go of craving, going for a higher happiness. You know, the Lokutara Dhamma brings the highest happiness, the happiness, the, peace, the truly peaceful mind that's let go of attachment. Even though it can be quite a tiresome process to battle with craving and attachment, bringing up mindfulness, keeping sila, reflecting on the three characteristics. It's a tiresome process, but it's worth it. Whatever small amounts of suffering or dukkha you have as you do it, if you look at the the goal, the purpose of it, it's worth it. You're raising the level of your mind through the training. If we don't do this training, then we're just basically we're going to be stuck, stuck in our own mental suffering indefinitely, and we'd say stuck in the world, stuck in the samsara. Whether you believe in past lives, future lives, or not, you can prove it. This life, that you know, when you follow a craving, you don't develop the path your mind is always going to suffer. There's no way around that. So we have a, a night of practice, so 
Maybe I'll leave you with those reflections and we can carry on sitting. <laughs>